Hey guys, welcome to Not at Dinner, a podcast where we talk about politics, religion, and everything else you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. I'm Link, your host for this podcast, and today we're going to talk about a few different things. Um, we're going to talk about some questions I've been asked a number of times recently. Um, what rights do asylum seekers have um, in relation to what's going on at the border right now? Do folks who are coming here to seek asylum have the right to be doing that? Uh, the second question, what is a lame duck session? If you've been following the news or anything recently since the midterms, you've probably heard a lot about the lame duck session and different things that might be passed during the lame duck session, the potential for the government to shut down, what does all this mean, and what on earth is even going on with the Russia investigation. So those are the three like most common things that folks have been asking me. And then also, and first, we're going to talk about former President George H.W. Bush. Uh, the 41st president of the United States. He was Ronald Reagan's vice president. He then became president in 1988. He was a single-term president that was voted out in 1992 when Bill Clinton won his first election. And yesterday he passed away at the age of 94. His wife, Barbara Bush, passed away in April. I think, okay, so first and foremost, in regards to this, George H.W. Bush was a human person. He had a family. He is survived by children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, etc. Um, and so regardless of your political stance, I think we should all be sending our condolences and our good thoughts to their family, to his friends, to his loved ones, because no matter who it is that's passed, it always sucks. It sucks when someone that you care about dies, and in this case, that person is a former president, which means that we have opinions about his legacy or his life, but that doesn't change that his family lost someone, so our thoughts and our condolences are with, with the family. I think it's also the case that when someone dies, our instinct is to automatically start to think only about the good things they've done. I think that's positive. I I think there's no reason to harp on or think about the times when someone was imperfect or the things someone did that were negative after they've passed. Um, especially if it's someone that you care about, it's better to remember them for all the good things they did and all the happy memories that you have with them. A lot of news organizations, a lot of news stories that you'll read over the next couple of days are going to be really positive about some of the positive things that George H.W. Bush did. Um, of course, this is the 41st president of the United States, the father of George W. Bush, just to make sure that it's 100% clear. George W. Bush, the president who was just before Obama, which would make him the 43rd president, is still alive. He is fine. George H.W. Bush did some things which were good. He did some things which were bad. In the grand scheme of a presidential legacy, I think the history books will write him as inconsequential, which isn't to diminish, diminish his memory or to spit on his grave or anything of that nature. But, you know, realistically speaking, the great majority of 
American presidents have been relatively inconsequential. You probably couldn't tell me something that Herbert Hoover did or that William Taft did, not because they didn't do anything or because they didn't have family and friends that loved them, but because they didn't make huge sweeping changes to the face of the country. And that's okay. Sometimes just letting things ride and doing small things is the right thing to do. George H.W. Bush did do some bigger things. Um, He took us into the first Gulf War, which some people will say is a positive uh, portion of his legacy because he, you know, that was maybe considered a just war and we were, you know, fighting, fighting to protect people that needed protecting. Some people might see that as a negative thing because effectively it got us started in the whole war with Iraq situation. And do we really need to be over there? Is that something we really need to be fighting? So we can debate whether or not that's a good or a bad thing that he did. But in the end, that is one thing that he did and something that I think that's going to be a part of his history forever. But George H.W. Bush was also the president in 1988 and for four years from that time and the vice president for eight years before that. The day that I'm recording this podcast is Saturday, December 1st. Today as in this minute I'm recording, not today when you're listening, um, is World AIDS Day. It's a day that we remember the fight against HIV and AIDS and individuals who don't have access to the resources to prevent this disease. It's also a day that we remind people to like go get tested. In a lot of cases, you can get tested for free, so there's quite literally no reason not to be tested for HIV or AIDS. Um, so go get tested. But it's interesting to look back on the legacy of a president from the 80s on World AIDS Day. Because Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and the rest of the individuals that were in power during that time in the 80s in America when the AIDS epidemic was, you know, sweeping the country, it was primarily something that gay men got. This was a disease that was mostly something that gay men got, and then in some cases also drug users would get HIV and AIDS. And in the, eight, in the 80s, both of those things were equally bad and horrible and you're immoral you're this is like um unfortunately like a lot of people would say getting hiv or aids was the consequence of your depraved behavior um and obviously we know that not to be true now now we can say that like nobody deserves to have hiv or aids regardless of whatever behavior they're engaging in and being gay is not equal to being a user of drugs, but hopefully the great majority of us can say that. If you disagree with that, then, you know, I don't know. You need to really uh, look into that. But it's important to just remember that while... It's important to remember that two things can be simultaneously true. It can be true that George H.W. Bush served his country, that he was a human being, which means that he inherently deserved respect, that he has family and friends who love him, and that when he passes away, lots of people are sad, and that in death he deserves to be respected. 
it can be also true that in life he caused a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and a lot of indirectly a lot of death. Um, and that's not great. That's not a great legacy to have. And when you think about World AIDS Day and you think about the 80s and you look back to that time, you know, of course, I wasn't, I guess I was alive for some of the 80s, but I wasn't old enough to be conscious of any of that stuff that was going on, you know, to care. But so I can't speak from a firsthand perspective of what it would have been like in the 80s to really be worried about something like that. But, you know, when we look back on the legacy of someone and we remember them and we respect them and and I think it's okay that a lot of news stories right now about about this president are positive. The long-term legacy does need to be remembered that he didn't do enough. Him and Reagan both spent a lot of time speaking negatively about people with AIDS rather than finding ways that we could stop the spread of the disease and cure people and so on. I think if we want to think about George H.W. Bush as a leader, then we should think about the ways that we can learn from him and the ways that we can do things differently. And I think that looks like, you know, I think something that's I wouldn't, I don't want to say equal to, but definitely on par with the AIDS epidemic is our opioid crisis that we're in the middle of right now. And it just seems like we're doing a lot of similar things with this crisis. We're saying that, you know, people who die from overdosing and, and whatnot, it's the consequence of, of living a, a life that's poor and that's bad. But if we really look at like the opioid crisis and and the root of it, we're prescribing narcotic painkillers to people. Maybe they got an injury playing a sport. Maybe they just sort of developed a chronic pain. Whatever it might be, we prescribe narcotics. These are addictive, and it doesn't take long for that to turn into heroin and other drugs that can then lead to overdose and other diseases and addiction and and homelessness. If instead of blaming the people, even if the decisions they're making are imperfect, if we stop just constantly blaming people, oh, you're bad, you're bad, that's why you have this addiction, that's why you're dying, and we tried to actually solve the problem, we could we could deal with this differently than they dealt with AIDS. We could, you know, I think one thing we need to look into is CBD, um, which is the non-mind-altering portion of the marijuana plant that some studies have shown can help with pain. But because marijuana is classified as a class A drug or whatever it is, the the FDA and, and whoever are not allowed to do full studies. But what if CBD, which doesn't get you high, is not addictive, can help with pain, were to be prescribed instead? I think we need to do more studies because we don't know the long-term effects of using CBD. We don't know if it really is something that helps with pain. 
we don't have all the data to say this is the right way to go, but I think those are the conversations we need to be having because then we're not prescribing narcotics to people anymore. So anyways, the point of that whole thing is look at the way that HIV and AIDS were dealt with in the 80s. That should be an example of how we should never deal with medical crises in this country because that was really, really not great. Um, To George H.W. Bush's credit, uh, later on in his term, he did pass a law that protected people with HIV and AIDS from being discriminated against, meaning that if it turned out that someone had HIV or AIDS, you couldn't evict them, you couldn't take away their health care anymore, um, you couldn't fire them, etc. So that is a good thing that he did, but I think that's not enough, and that's part of his legacy and will be forever. Um, And I also think it's important to remember that Regardless of if he was a product of his time, there have been women that have come forward that spoke about his poor behavior towards them, that he grabbed them during photo shoots in inappropriate ways. And a lot of people would say, like, don't talk about that. You know, you don't want to say something negative about someone who's died. But, and I would say, you know, in the next couple of weeks or so, of course not, right? In the next couple of weeks or so, the mainstream news should, you know, will focus on the positives, and that's great. But long term, those women's lives were impacted by his actions. And long term, that is going to be part of his legacy. And again, should set an example for, you know, men and, and women too coming up in politics and in any job and in any form of humanity. That the things you do will always be a part of your legacy. And, you know, don't do that don't don't do things that are inappropriate so you know there's definitely and rightly some people on the left who are frustrated by all the positive coverage because it's not talking about you know the the pain that this president caused to a really 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 big chunk of of the american public I think when we talk about understanding both sides, you know, there is a benefit to positive news coverage right after someone's death. Just from the perspective of, you know, George H.W. Bush's grandkids and great-grandkids, you know, scrolling through their news feeds, you know, it will be nice for them to see some positive news about their grandfather right now while they're grieving. I think that's okay. I think that's an okay thing to to, to do for someone. Um, So long as we remember that, like, long term... When the dust settles, we remember that as a political figure, his legacy is not all positive. As a human being, as a father, as a, as a brother, you know, as a husband, his legacy is great, I suppose. I don't know. I'm not in his family, but they've said all positive things about him. It's possible that he could have been all those really positive things and also have a legacy that is imperfect. That's George H.W. Bush. I think it's complicated when politicians die because of everything we've talked about here, just because human beings deserve to be treated with respect and nobody wants to speak negatively about someone who's passed away, and I think that's a respectable way to behave, but when you think, okay, in addition to being a human being, they're also a political figure. Okay, what does their political legacy look like? What will the history books say about this president? 50, 100 years from now, 
that's different than what the family's going to say 50, 100 years from now. That's sort of what you sign up for when you decide to get into public service, that you're signing up for a public legacy that's entirely separate from your private legacy. So I'm glad that he lived a long life. Um, he was, like I said, he was 94 years old. So that's a good, good long life. He did a lot of really good things. He has a family that loves him. And now he is off doing whatever he and his wife like to do together. Um, and they're back together again. They're the longest married couple. Um, like the longest married presidential couple or something like that, uh, which I think is really cool. Just one of those like extra silly facts that don't really matter, but it's just, it's pretty neat to think about. So our condolences are with his family and with his friends. And, you know, if you are someone that's frustrated, you know, how could we be ignoring all the ways that this president, as a president in his political life, caused pain? Just remember that right now is the time to honor and think about and respect a human being who's passed away, and the history books and the historians will remember the true legacy of this president. Another interesting note about George H.W. Bush and his legacy, and this is something that I haven't gotten a lot of questions about, so I haven't added to this Q&A. Um... I might make an episode for season two about this, but George H.W. George Bush brought dog whistle political uh, campaign ads into the mainstream with the Willie Horton ad, if you're old enough to remember that. This was an ad that not Bush's campaign directly, but supporters of Bush made a commercial about... Um, at the time, there was such a thing as a weekend pass where anybody who was in prison could get out for the weekend to go to work or spend time with their families, regardless of the crime that they had committed. Willie Horton was on a weekend pass, and he raped and murdered someone. Willie Horton was also black. And in the commercial, uh, it was sort of that Michael Dukakis, which is who George H.W. Bush ran against. Uh, probably nobody remembers him, but that is the guy that he ran against. Um, anyway, they're saying Michael Dukakis is not tough enough on crime and that George Bush would be tough on crime, but it used a lot of dog whistle terms to imply that if you don't vote for Bush, then you're letting all the dangerous black people run wild. And you don't want that. And that's horrible. Um, a dog whistle politics is a really... Dog whistle politics is something that you really should know about if you're paying attention to politics in 2018 because this is a crazy time. Um, this is a crazy time. And Donald Trump is nothing if not a dog whistle politician. So we'll do a whole episode about dog whistle politics. But if it's something that you're interested in, if this has piqued your interest... Um, one, Google Willie Horton. There's lots of information out there about what this was, what it meant, kind of the legacy of it. And then also check out the book, Dog Whistle Politics. That kind of explains all this and, and the impact that it has on our political 
landscape in general. I'll put a link to that book on the website if you want to go check it out. Um, not at dinnerpodcast.com. During the break between season one and season two, you can check out lots of stuff on the website. I'll try to keep it somewhat updated uh, while we go through the holiday break. So, speaking of breaks, we'll take a quick break right here. And then we will come back and we'll talk about those three questions that I mentioned at the beginning. What is a lame duck session? What rights do asylum seekers have? And what on earth is happening with the Russian investigation? As I mentioned last week, this, or excuse me, two weeks ago, this episode is the last episode of season one. We're going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays, and we'll be back on the second Monday of January, which I'll pull up the specific date right now, January 14th. So again, thanks so much for the support. This has been great. I really enjoyed doing this uh, for season one, and we'll be back season two making a few changes based on some positive feedback that I've gotten um, and things people want me to keep including. So as I said, check out the website. I'll keep that up to date with explainers and news stories and book recommendations. You can find all that stuff there. You can also get any merch if you want to support this podcast. Um, That merch will help us upgrade our audio equipment so that we can record with guests a little bit better. So give that a Look if you're interested on the website, not at dinnerpodcast.com. Welcome back. So we're doing a Q&A episode, um, but we spent the first half talking about the life and legacy of George H.W. Bush, since that's something that happened recently. But let's get into the some of these questions. So Kind of like I mentioned when we started this podcast, a big thing that inspired kind of starting this whole thing was that a lot of my friends, my colleagues, some, you know, different people in my life were asking me to explain different parts of things that were happening in the news, and I was happy to oblige and explain um, until someone joked that I should start, just start a podcast. And that was a good idea. So. Along those lines, these are the three questions I've gotten the most commonly uh, in the past couple of weeks, which is, what is a lame duck session? What rights do asylum seekers have? And the million dollar question, what on earth is happening with the Russia investigation? We're going to answer all three of those today. So the first one, what is a lame duck session? The actual term lame duck was coined in the 18th century in the London Stock Exchange, and it referred to someone who had defaulted on their debts. Uh, And then, literally speaking, lame duck refers to a duck who's not able to keep up with the rest of his flock, which makes him an easy target for predators. I'm not 100% sure how that then transitioned in the 19th century to referring to politics, but it did. Um, But what it means in politics is a politician who can 
who's effectively it's a politician whose term is over who was voted out or who had has reached their term limits but whose official term doesn't end because we elect new politicians in November and the new politicians don't start until January so November to January is considered a lame duck time for in Congress it's a lame duck session um, in the presidency, that president is considered a, a lame duck president, and that's because someone who was voted out in the midterm elections is still going to remain a congressperson until their replacement is sworn in in January, which means for the next two and a half months, they can do anything they want without risk of consequence because they're leaving anyways. And so it's great. In some cases, it's frustrating. In other cases, a lot of times, lame duck sessions try to push through the last bit of partisan things they want to get done before the other party takes over. So in 2010, when Democrats lost control of the House, um, they pushed through a bunch of stuff. I'm pretty sure Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal was pushed through in the 2010 lame duck session. Um... And in this lame duck session, there's a lot of stuff they're looking to push through. I think the thing you're going to hear the most right now during the lame duck session is the spending bill needs to be signed or the government will shut down on December 7th, which is bad because lots of people who work for the government will no longer get paid. It's bad for a lot of reasons, but that's the humanitarian reason that it's bad. The president wants the border wall funded before he'll sign any budget approvals. But, of course, the Democrats don't want to give him the border wall. Lame duck Republicans might be more willing to give the border wall, but Republicans that are continuing on in Congress, they still have consequences, they still have um, constituents to answer to, so they might be a little more hesitant on the border wall. That's a really big deal right now. And then there's also the reality of, well, listen, if, if the people voted and the people voted in a majority of Democrats, then it is the case that the people don't want the House to pass a border, border wall funding because no Democrats support border wall. That's very complicated what's going to happen, but the answer to the question of what is a lame duck session a lame duck session is just the time between when new congresspeople have been elected and when those new congresspeople are sworn in in January. Um, if in 2020 Donald Trump loses and a new president is voted in, then Donald Trump will be a lame duck president from November of 2020 until January of 2021. Obama was a lame duck president. So it's not like an insult or anything negative. I don't know if it's like, since a lame duck is someone that's lost its flock, you know, maybe the congressperson lost their flock. I have no idea how the transition got made, but in the 19th century is when they started using lame duck to refer to politics. So that's a lame duck session. Real interesting. Uh, you can Google it. Easy to read about, but it's been a term for a while. George H.W. Bush was a lame duck from November of 1992 to January of 1993. 
if I remember how math works. The second question is in regards to what's going on at the border. I'm sure a lot of you guys have been following what's going on down there. People have, you know, been working their way north to try to seek asylum in the United States. They're escaping um, violence, you know, anything from gang violence to uh, government violence, whatever might be going on, and they're seeking that in the United States. There's a lot going on about their right to do so. So first of all, it is an international human right to be able to seek asylum in another country. Effectively, to be tear gassing these people at the border, to not let them apply for asylum when they get to our country, is a violation of international human rights. That is bad. Now, this particular administration has made it clear that they don't care about the international human rights concepts overall. Um, that's terrible also, and that should be a huge red flag to anyone that cares about human rights. But So that's a violation of human rights. It's not a violation of the law. Those are two separate things. The United States law has a refugee act that was passed in 1980 that gives people the right to seek asylum in the United States if they are unable or unwilling to return to their country because returning to their country would be dangerous, they would die or be imprisoned or what have you. 100% of people that arrive at the border, whether it's the Mexican border, the Canadian border, on an airplane, however it is that they get to the United States, they have the right to seek asylum. What becomes complicated is the actual, like, what happens to these people? Are they allowed to remain in the United States while their asylum cases are being tried? And the answer is yes. Um, there's no official law saying that they have to be allowed in the United States, but there's also not a law saying they're not allowed in the United States. And generally speaking, most presidents have said that like either they can be in the United States while their cases are being processed or they're detained in the United States while their cases are being processed. Um, detainment is, in my opinion, will just further traumatize someone that's already escaped, trying to escape trauma. So detainment seems like something you would do to a criminal. Someone seeking asylum is not a criminal. In my opinion, they shouldn't be detained, but it is legal to detain them at the border if they're seeking asylum. That's sort of um, a judgment call. That's what's hard about kind of the concept of seeking asylum is there's some gray areas in the process. It's also important to note, and this is, an, I think some of the most sensationalized images out there right now are of the little kids that are going to immigration court without a lawyer. I, that is a problem, but the law is that in the cases of asylum and immigration, we don't, uh, it's not a situation where we'll appoint a lawyer if you aren't able to afford one. It's up to you to hire a lawyer. That's a reason why if you do want folks to be able to try their cases and have a lawyer and, and and care about things happening at the border, one of the best things you can do is donate to immigration legal funds that help folks at the border have lawyers so that P 
people who maybe they don't speak English, maybe they don't know the law in and out, maybe they're little kids, whatever it is, can have a lawyer that can help try their cases, gives them a better shot at getting into the country and being able to seek asylum here. Since the kind of 60s and more so in the 80s, the United States has always passed more and more laws that encourage us to accept refugees and accept uh, folks seeking asylum into our country because we want to be a bastion of hope for the rest of the of the world. People can think this is where I can be free from danger, where I can be free from all these bad things that are happening. And so I think if, if we care about the legacy of our country, we really need to be thinking about the way that we're treating immigrants. Um, there's a limit to the number of immigrants that are allowed in. Uh, per the Refugee Act, I want to say it's something like 70,000. I'm going to look it up right now. The annual admission of refugees is set to 50,000 per fiscal year. So there is a point where we would say, okay, 50,000 people have come in this year. We're going to take a pause, wait till the fiscal year um, resets, and then start letting people in again. What that looks like in terms of where people are able to stay during that time is something we also should be addressing as a country. But in terms of what rights folks who are seeking asylum have, they have the same rights constitutionally that any undocumented immigrant would have until they are granted asylum. And then they usually have similar rights to what a green card holder um, or permanent resident type of person in this country would have. So they should be protected under human rights laws. That's the first thing that we need to think about is international human rights and the way we're treating people at the border. If we want to talk about George H.W. Bush and saying like, even though he did these negative things, he's still a human being who deserves respect. And I believe that we need to say the same thing about folks that are coming into this country. Who knows their history? Who knows anything about them? But they're human beings, they deserve respect, and so while we're going through the process to see if they deserve asylum in our country, we need to find ways to respect them. And that's going to look like, in my opinion, um, places for them to stay that are near the border, lawyers that can be appointed, not tear-gassing people at the border, thing one. Um, and you want to think about why a lot of folks on the left want to abolish ICE. ICE is something that didn't even really exist before 9-11. Um, and now it exists, and it exists primarily to exert power over immigrants. And that wasn't supposed to be the intention. I think the phrase abolish ICE is a little too sensationalized because... It is the case that we don't want to live in a country that is pure anarchy, which means we do need some form of law enforcement, right? Some way to enforce our laws. So I would, rather than saying abolish ICE, I would say replace ICE with a more humanitarian, human-focused organization that can help those who are seeking asylum get into our country and also screen the very small percentage of individuals that might be looking to do harm. There is a way to do that in a much more humane way than we currently treat folks who are trying to come through the Mexican border. The worst possible thing we could do is to put a wall because one, there's already a wall and a fence and 
tons of security. Um, a wall would be redundant. Two, it's mean. So I'm against anything that's mean. A wall is mean. I don't support a wall. I don't think we need that. We need to have a real conversation about immigration, but it's really hard to sort out who's open to having a genuine conversation about immigration and who's more interested in having uh, a conversation about race or xenophobia. Because lots of people are racist, lots of people are xenophobic, or they're nationalists who only care about this country um, and whomever they consider, quote, real citizens. That's a, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna be able to have a reasonable conversation to move forward because whether or not they're saying it out loud, what those folks want is no more brown people in this country. That's not what I want. Um, so what does immigration look like going forward? I don't know, um, but hopefully we'll do a whole episode on immigration and get a lot more information about that. So stay tuned for season two. We will definitely be talking a lot more about immigration. I think this is a topic that people don't know a lot about. And to be honest, I don't know a ton about the in-depth ins and outs. So I'm looking forward to learning about it. I have a couple of resources that I'm going to use to get more educated information than I could just on my own. So stay tuned for that. I didn't intend for this podcast to be just constant uh, advertising for next season, but as I'm kind of going through these topics, I'm thinking like, wow, this would be really cool to dig into a little bit more. So uh, yeah, cool. I'm really excited for, for what's to come in January. And the last question, and to be honest, this is the question that I get the most. It's also the question I don't know the answer to which is what on earth is happening with the Russia investigation. So the breakdown of it is this. Robert Mueller was hired as an independent investigator to investigate the collusion between Russia and the Trump administration in the 2016 election. That's what he's doing. He's done a lot, a lot, a lot of investigating, and he's ended up sort of he turned up some wrongdoing that he sent off to different uh, bureaus because they were going to be better to investigate those particular things. It, maybe he turned up wrongdoing that wasn't specifically related to the Russia investigation. He's also turned up wrongdoing among um, a number of people within the Trump organization, as well as some people in Russian in Russia and some companies in Russia. So, George Papadopoulos, who was a Trump campaign foreign policy advisor, was arrested in July and pleaded guilty to making false statements to the FBI. Paul Manafort, who is Trump's campaign chair, was indicted on 25 counts by Mueller's team. He made a plea deal with Mueller, but then very recently Mueller said that he breached that plea deal by lying to them. So more is to come in terms of Paul Manafort and what he's going to be facing going forward. Um, he's already been convicted of eight counts of financial crime. So 
there's a lot coming from from him and what's going on with him. So I think that's all stuff we're going to find out about in the new year. Rick Gates was a Trump campaign ad. Um, he agreed to a plea deal with Mueller's team. Um, similar financial crimes to what Manafort did. And in addition to that, a conspiracy charge. He pled guilty to one of those conspiracy charges and struck a plea deal, which mostly means that he's like cooperating with Mueller to help overturn other wrongdoing. Michael Flynn, who was Trump's national security advisor, pled guilty in last December, not right now, to making false statements to the FBI, so that was a long time ago. Um, so those are the biggest names in the Trump organization that have been named in Mueller's investigation. 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies were indicted for conspiracy charges for trying to interfere with the 2016 campaign. So that's a big thing that happened. And then the one you've probably heard the most about, which is Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen is, or was Trump's former lawyer. He put guilty to eight counts of tax and financial charges, campaign finance violations, a lot of money stuff that he was doing related to paying off people that Trump had affairs with, like Stormy Daniels. Mueller handed that off to another organization in New York because that wasn't directly related to what was going on with the Russia investigation. It is still illegal financial crimes and campaign finance violations and and the like, but that was being dealt with by the uh, just a totally separate place in New York. In November of this year, very recently, he also made a plea deal, plea deal with Mueller because he lied to Congress, that initial investigation that Congress did. It turns out that Michael Cohen had lied during that investigation to Congress, and so he cut a plea deal with Mueller. Um, and so that's going on, and a lot of people, that's kind of a big deal because that's sort of pointing out that the congressional investigation that happened a long time ago I don't want to say it was a sham, because I, that implies that the Congress people who were asking the questions had negative motives, and we don't know if they did, but certainly that it didn't actually get to the heart of anything because people were lying in their answers. So just a lot of stuff that's going on with that. So what's going on with the Russia investigation is that Robert Mueller is still investigating. Some things have turned up, I think because Donald Trump is still the president of the United States. A lot of people think nothing is coming of the Mueller investigation. That is not true. Lots of things are coming from that investigation. Lots of people are being lots of people are being indicted. Lots of people are making plea deals. Is it going to come up that Trump is indicted as well? We don't know. Um the end goal of the Mueller investigation isn't to indict and impeach Donald Trump. I know that's the end goal for a lot of citizens of the United States of America, but Robert Mueller doesn't have that goal. Robert Mueller's goal is to do a full investigation to see what happened in the way of Russia interfering with the 2016 election and make sure that does not happen again. Because Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. Lots of stuff happened on Facebook. There's also been stuff coming out about how Facebook was intertwined with some Russian organizations 
it's honestly very confusing and very complicated, which is why I haven't talked about it in this podcast at all. Um, and here's where you can feel like I'm not constantly selling you on next season because I don't know if that if I'll do an episode, a full episode on the Russia investigation. Maybe I will, but the kind of the long and short of it is Robert Mueller is rightly being really quiet about everything that he's doing. So we don't know a lot. A lot of it is kind of behind the scenes. It's confidential. It's what it's whatever, and it's hard to know like what that's coming out is true and untrue with the exception of very clear filed in court plea deals and indictments so it's hard to to kind of break it down and say like this is what's going on if that's something people really want or something really big comes from the russia investigation like if donald trump gets indicted i will do an episode about the russia investigation but as it stands, it's going kind of slowly. Things are happening, but they're small. They're not the big crazy news stories that I think everyone's looking for. So maybe that's why people feel like nothing's really coming of it. But things are happening. They're happening behind the scenes. People are being indicted. Crimes are being uncovered. They're just not really interesting, flashy crimes that make for good news stories. So yeah, that's Russia or the Russia investigation. That's what's going on with that. These are our most commonly asked questions. I would also like to say before we end this episode, we started a Facebook page. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter. That one's not quite as popular, so it hasn't been used quite as much. We have a website. And a lot of folks have been sending messages on Instagram and on Facebook with ideas for episodes so that's really cool for two reasons one i'm so stoked that folks are listening enough that they're engaged enough to provide suggestions 10 out of 10 very cool um and two it's just very validating to know that uh you you all trust me with whatever it is that you have questions about or whatever you want uh to be covered on this podcast so thank you for that if you aren't already, follow us on Instagram, Not At Dinner Podcast. Check us out on our website, notatdinnerpodcast.com. That's where I'm going to be keeping both of those. I'll be keeping a lot of stuff updated during the break. And then we also have a Facebook page that you can check out as well. Facebook's really great for sending messages. Um, with episode ideas, those I'm able to really keep track of in kind of a clear way through Facebook. So, um, Or Instagram DMs, both of those work. But yeah, thanks for listening all through these episodes this is episode 10 which makes perfect the end of season one and we'll be back january 14th with some new and exciting content we'll see how much changes between now and then so we can have all new news stories to cover thanks so much for listening i've had a blast doing this see you all on january 14th Please enjoy your holiday, whether that's Hanukkah, whether that's Christmas, whether that's Kwanzaa, whether that's another holiday. Um, Just enjoy the heck out of December. It's going to be a good holiday. And have a great day.